of worshiping the Lord with you. We are at the end of Matthew chapter 17. We get to read the last couple of verses here. Please open up your Bibles if you have them. If not, we have the text on the screen in the New King James Version. It says, Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. When he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their son or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers, and Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, let, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. And so, Father, as we approach this amazing sets of Scripture today that are so relevant even for today, it's amazing how Scripture just transcends time, even more relevant than today's newspaper. Just the privilege of opening up your Word, and, and as we've been going through the Scriptures, having that realization that your Word is so fresh and new every single time we read it. And so, Lord, I, I thank you so much for these, uh, my friends and my family that are uh, gathered here tonight. It's a privilege to hear the the joy from the kids as they're playing outside and as they're going to be learning from your word as well. Strengthen those teachers. We thank you for our pastors. We thank you for uh, Mike Atkinson and Mike Cosper and Pastor Jason and Pastor Mike Ostheimer. Lord, just give them the strength and encouragement uh, every single day. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, your presence here with us tonight. As we open your word tonight, let it fill our hearts with power that we need every single day. Let it refresh our very souls tonight. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Great thing about Wednesday nights is we get to go straight to the scriptures. We've been in the book of Matthew now for, I think, about five months, four or five months now. And, and the privilege is we've been going through the whole scripture. It's so relevant to our very lives especially as you come to this text and, and you think about, especially as people maybe uh, getting their W-2s now this time of year, whether they're online or in the mail, and you have to think about taxes, right? And that's what a lot of people vote on is, is how your money book is going to be affected uh, by the people that we put into office. And again, tax is nothing new. All the way back, even 2,000 years ago, Peter worried about taxes, right? In, in fact, as he's coming uh, to this booth, if you will, in Peter has come to this realization uh, that he has to pay taxes. And being a fisherman from this same reason, he would have had to pay a certain amount of what was called the temple tax, but also to the Roman government as well. In, in fact, it says there in verse 24, when they come to Capernaum, uh, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay uh, the temple tax? This is the son of God. We've been learning 
that Jesus, of course, is divinity, Emmanuel, God with us here on uh, the earth. Should God ever have to pay taxes? And Peter, understanding this from the perspective of Jesus, is coming to this realization that as a man is Jesus subjecting himself voluntarily to the laws of the land. Yes, he does. And doing so, he pays a tax. Now, it's interesting how he weaves this in, not just as a human being, 100% man, but also as 100% God, providing the means for which the taxes are made, okay? Which is also interesting how we see it at the very end here. In verse 25, he said, yes, and when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Now, this is so relevant to today, by the way. You think of even Biden's son, Hunter, right? What, what is he being accused of in a lot of cases, right? Evading what? We call this nepotism. You guys know what nepotism is. It's where the kids of certain government officials can get away with certain things. It's not only in the government, but it also happens in churches. Did you know that too? Where the pastor's kids get special privileges. And of course, it doesn't happen in this church, but in certain churches, it can happen, unfortunately. Where the pastor will be grooming a, a friend or a son or even a daughter to take their place. And, and you see this here, unfortunately, being taken to this extreme where nepotism plays a place even in the temple tax or in taxes in uh, general. W wouldn't you love it if you were related to someone that had the ability to erase all your taxes? Thank you, Les. Or someone, maybe a, a brother or a sister or a relative or a friend that has the ability as a, a tax preparer to be able to mitigate your taxes down to uh, very little or even nothing. Is there privileges in, in knowing the right person that, that can have this way of, of evading the taxes? Peter knows Jesus. In, in fact, he's personally relying upon Jesus to provide the very means for which he himself will pay his taxes. Now, it's interesting how Jesus does this because what does Jesus tell Peter to do? What does he tell him to do? Go fishing. What was Peter's job? He was a fisherman. He didn't go tell him to go dig up a plant or harvest some weed or pick a fruit or something like that. He purposely chose something that Peter knew how to do and then created the fish that would be able to hold that coin in its mouth or in its stomach and be able to provide the very taxes, not only for Peter, but also for who else? Jesus, for both of them. This coin was enough to provide the taxes for both Peter and Jesus. 
The temple tax was called the, the half shekel tax. In fact, even if you go to Israel today, this is the, my favorite souvenir to bring back from Israel. It's called the half shekel, okay? Now, normally, if you go to Israel, it's about 20 to 1 in terms of the exchange rate. So that means you could get 20 shekels to the dollar, okay? And so a half shekel would be 1 40th of a dollar, okay? So approximately seven and a half cents or somewhere around there, okay? So you think about the conversion of getting a half shekel and then giving it out. I always give it out to the men on Monday nights when I come back. And it's one of those things that's tangible. This is exactly what Jesus is showing Peter. How much is in that fish's mouth for two people? Half shekel plus a half shekel equals... One shekel. Yeah, exactly. So there's one shekel in this fish's mouth. Enough to pay for whom? Peter and Jesus. Now, it's interesting to note why Jesus purposely chooses this illustration. Who's the Son of God? And should Jesus ever have to pay taxes? Being the son, by the way, being the son of God, should he ever have to pay a temple tax? And yet, what does he do in his subservience, in his submission, coming to the earth as a human being, 100% man? What is he showing? That he's obeying the will of God. And, and to a greater extent, as we're going to see later on in the book of Matthew, even coming to the point of, of submission to the death on a cross as well. And of course, that's even greater. Of course, nepotism was rampant even 2,000 years ago. It's rampant today. But it's interesting to note, when it happens to us, we're happy. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to have your taxes eliminated? And how would it make you feel? It would make me feel happy, of course. You would never have to pay taxes. But when it happens to someone else, what do we do? We get envious. And what is envy called in the Bible? Isn't it interesting how we, we look at these certain things? And this is going to be important, especially as we come to chapter 18, because every single illustration in chapter 18 is going to go toward the fact, as we see here, in fact, the segue as Jesus makes this term of the sons get special privileges. And then the disciples start arguing in the very next verse. Who's the most favorite, God? That's exactly what it does in the very next verse. The problem is, what we do is we normally stop here. Normally, there's a heading in our scriptures, and, and we say, I'll, I'll pick it up tomorrow, and we forget about what we read the previous day, and we just pick it up in the very next verse. But it's interesting how when we take away those chapter headings, when we take away those chapters, and we, we read the scriptures just straight through how the Bible comes to life in all of its context. And we've been seeing this, especially in the book of Matthew, because Matthew is very methodical in how he writes his book. Of course, from inspiration of the scriptures, as we've been seeing this book, the very theme of the book of Matthew 
is prophetic power. How, how Jesus Christ is fulfilling prophecy with power in their very midst and showing with these illustrations that I'm the son and I should not have to pay these taxes and yet he himself submits himself to the taxes himself. The temple taxes, by the way. The, those taxes for which we're supposed to pay for uh, the temple, the priests, and the various functions that would happen within uh, the temple itself. The one temple for which Jesus was the very fulfillment of, by the way. In fact, what happened when Jesus died in the temple? The veil was torn, right? And Jesus said from the very, not only previously to the cross, but also in fulfillment, again, of Scripture, that if you tear this temple down, I will build it up within how many days? Fulfilling a prophecy, fulfilling the Old uh, Testament. But we're always so envious of those that get the privileges. We're always envious. And remember, we, we've talked about this before. There's a difference between jealousy and envy. Envy is a sin, okay? The, the very last of the commandments, thou shalt not, what? Envy. And there's a difference between envy and jealousy. Jealousy is something that I have that is taken away from me, and I am jealous because it happened. God can be jealous and sin not, right? We can be jealous and sin not. It's something that's taken from us. Envy is different. Envy is you never had it in the first place. It's something that someone else has and you want it. And in every single case, that's always a sin. And that's why, of course, the very last of the Ten Commandments speaks to that. Peter, of course, in this amazing way that he asks these questions, and Jesus, of course, answers there in verse 27, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in the hook, take the fish that comes up first. When you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for you and me. And in the very next verse, nepotism creeps up again. Envy creeps up again. The disciples start arguing over who is the closest to Jesus. Look at what it says there in chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Exactly in this very instance where Jesus is giving this poignant illustration of what it means to be free as a son, what do the disciples start arguing about? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, of course, we do not have this problem in our church. It's for every other church out there, right? But you know that it, it creeps up in every single family, in every single group, in, in every single workplace, and in every single church, unfortunately, where we become envious of other people's positions. And it's always in proximity to the person 
who's in authority. Do you understand that? It's always in proximity to the person in authority. That person who wields the power, that person that makes the rules, you want to get as close as possible to that person in order to have influence or a title or some sort of status. Not just in religious circles, it it happens even in secular circles. It's very general. It happens in the human heart. We all want to elevate our status in life, right? We, we want to elevate who we are. The disciples are not immune to this. What are the disciples arguing about? Not just here on the earth. Not just around that table. Who gets to sit next to Jesus the closest? Or who gets to lay their head on Jesus' lap? You know, that kind of thing. My name is John, by the way. Okay, if you don't know me. Uh, John got to lay his head on Jesus' lap. But even in... Uh, to the extent of who's the greatest in heaven. They're not content here on the earth. What are, what are they arguing about? Yeah. Now, remember what we've been talking about, especially in the last previous weeks, we've seen Peter emerge as the kind of like the leader of the disciples. He was the one for which Jesus asked that amazing question, but who do you say that I am? And who was the one that got the right answer? Yeah, Peter got the right answer. And in the very next verse, what did he do? You better get behind me, Satan. Right? And, and in fact, in every single chapter now, we've seen Peter emerge as this leader. But it's interesting to know that Peter wasn't the closest to Jesus. And of course, how many disciples were there? You guys all know the answer. 12 disciples. Of course, there was lots of other followers of Jesus, but there was 12 that were the, the main followers, apostles, if you will, of Jesus. Then, there you, then you had the inner three, right? We've seen that in the previous section. Those inner three that got to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and, and see Jesus transfigured, got to see and meet with Moses and Elijah. Remember those three? Peter, James, and John. And then you had the closest to Jesus, or even the one that was his best friend here on the earth. The one for whom was given that greatest of last responsibilities, earthly responsibilities that Jesus had here on the earth, there from the cross, as his last human responsibility, having to care for his own mother. Who did he choose out of all those men? John, or the one that lay on his lap, John, or the one that we see again at the end of the book of John that John also had the privilege of writing was the one that got to live a natural life even into his 90s and had the privilege of viewing heaven itself. John the Revelator, the, the author of the book of Revelation. It's interesting that we don't get to choose who's the greatest. Who gets to choose? God does. Not us. We can argue all we want here on this earth. 
We can argue until we're blue in the face. We, we, we can do all the, the most amazing things, preach the most amazing sermons, and guess who's going to be the greatest in heaven? It's that little old lady that prayed for everybody. It's laden down with reward. It's the servant that are going to be the greatest in heaven. The Bible says that the last shall be first. In fact, Jesus is going to show us this exact example in the very next verse. He answers it for us. It's amazing. I love it. Verse 2, then Jesus called a little child to him. Not a Thaddeus or, or Judas or Matthew or, or, or Peter or James or John or Andrew. Not a single one of the disciples is chosen, by the way. Who is chosen out, out of all those people? A little child. Set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means even enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, there's the answer right there, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not those that argue. It's not those that vie for position. It's those that race to the bottom in the kingdom of heaven. Those that only Jesus sees. Not to be seen by a pastor. Not to be seen by a person in authority. Not to be seen by any person, but to be seen by God. It's when you go into your closet, shut the door, talk to your heavenly Father. In fact, and I, again, if you've ever uh, been on a Wednesday night, or of course we've been doing this for a, a, a long time. In fact, about two or three years ago, we were in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah chapter 66, it says this, and this is one of those key verses, not only in the book of Isaiah, but in, in the Bible in general, from which Jesus himself gets this very idea, going all the way back to the last chapter of the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verses 1 through 2, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those th things my hand has made, the throne room in heaven itself, the universe with all of its amazing complexity and unity, as we just sang tonight. Every single part of creation praises you. Every single time I look into the stars that you made, even the stars that we can't see, the beauty of God is right there. They declare the wonder of who God is. But is that who God looks for or even looks at? No. And all those things exist, Isaiah 66 says the Lord, but on this one will I look. Do you know where God is looking? Not at the majesty of heaven, not at the greatest people on the earth. Where is God looking? He tells us there, but on this one will I look. 
on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Those are the people that God is looking for. The humble, the contrite, the meek, the poor, those who fear and tremble at the word of God and desire to obey rather than just talk about it or argue about it or vie for certain position. You see, the type of people Jesus is looking for are the humble. And Jesus purposely chooses this little child who wasn't even arguing, didn't even care, by the way. He was probably just playing, right? And Jesus chooses this child to be the example of what it means to be humble. The example of what it means to even enter the kingdom of heaven, a childlike uh, faith. Humility always keeps us reliant and close to Jesus so we don't fall away. When I'm humble, when I'm reliant, who am I depending upon? God. Who were the disciples depending upon? Their status, who they were, what they did, what they said, the, the accomplishments in life, right? And that may look good on paper. That may look good in certain circles. But who is God looking for? The humble. The ones that rely upon him. It's interesting how Matthew, in this entire chapter, of course, we talked about this last week. I, I, the, of course, the homework assignment was that you would read chapter 18 here, and not just piecemeal, not just certain verses. And there's going to be certain verses that you're going to notice that are very, a lot of the time, taken out of context, even in this one chapter here. But to see the whole chapter in context, Every single example, every single paragraph is going to come back to the fact of who are you relying upon? Who is your daddy? Who is your father? Who's the one that you are drawing close to? In fact, that's exactly what it says there in verse 6, continuing on with Jesus showing who is the greatest in heaven. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life a lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet and be cast into the everlasting fire. Now again, unfortunately what people do is, and you've probably even heard of this or seen it, unfortunately what people do is they take this very literally. And again, the example here is this little child. What does that little child rely upon for everything? For everything. His parents. The, the ones that provide for him, right? And of course, a, a child or a person who is dependent upon another person, that, that humility 
what does it mean for us to rely fully upon God himself? Can God save us in every single instance? Now, of course, the illustration that we see here, what Jesus is saying, and, if, and when you go to heaven, are you going to see a whole bunch of one-eyed, one-handed, one-footed people? I hope not. No, what was, it's not what you do with your body. What did Jesus say in the very previous section? How do you go to heaven? You act like a little child, okay? It's not if you cut off your hand or cut off your feet or pluck out your eyes. That, that, that's not the purpose or how to enter heaven. Now, what does the illustration show here? If there's something, maybe it's your phone, or maybe it's a screen, or maybe it's a plate. Are we supposed to cut those things out of our life? And unfortunately, what we do is we do the opposite of what the scriptures say, is what we do is we say, I can resist the temptation. What does Jesus say? Cut it out of your life. Get rid of it, right? Because there's a lot of people that can cut off their hand or pluck up their eye and still sin with the other eye or the other hand. And they're very creative about doing it, by the way. Okay? What is the lesson here? It's to cut those sins out of our life. In fact, this is what Jesus says in the very next verse. And if your eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. What are the eyes of an innocent one? What are the hands of an innocent one? What are the feet of an innocent one? What do they want to do? Please the one that they're reliant upon. They, they, they want to be close to the person that they're reliant upon. They want to be as close to their mom or their dad as possible. My, my mom just recently passed away, and most of you know this, the privilege that we had, my wife and I, and of course, my, my mom didn't have any daughters. She only had three sons, but the privilege of, especially all of her daughter-in-laws, not just Emily, of course, Emily was probably her favorite, of course. But uh, right what I'm saying, don't have nepotism, don't have favoritism, I say it. I always get into trouble that way. And I'll hear about it later, by the way. But you understand what it means to be close to someone. For the last eight nights of my mom's life, both Emily and I had the privilege of sleeping in the very same room with her. Listening to her breathe. And breathe. And every single time her breath would change, my wife would be up checking up on me. It, 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 it's not about, in terms of the things that you do, it's the things that you're close to. It's the one you're close to. It's the one that you're reliant upon, the one who bore me. And the privilege of being there for the last week of her life. And even in a greater sense, to be close to the one who created. 
and whom we get to spend eternity with. Isn't that better? That, that every single one of us have the privilege of being close to God. Closer than any other person. And, and, and to realize that is the greatest privilege that we have here on the earth. Because who are you going to spend eternity with? And, and if you're investing in eternity, wouldn't you want to invest in your relationship with God? That's the privilege that we have. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says there in, in verses 10 and 11. A lot better than what I say. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven the angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And in the very next verse, he gives that illustration of the one lost sheep. Now, Matthew is different from the other Gospels. The other Gospels, they have multiple illustrations of this same topic. Matthew only gives one illustration in terms of a parable, but he's going to give some other illustrations that are unique to Matthew, okay? So in the very end, you probably heard this many times. Unfortunately, again, a lot of times we take this out of context. We, we normally just hear a sermon just on the lost sheep or just on the 99 sheep or something like that without the previous sections. And, and, and the privilege, especially as you go through the Bible, verse by verse, precept upon precept, word upon word, the privileges of seeing this in context, what was the reason why Jesus started this whole conversation in the first place? Who's the greatest? They were fighting. They're fighting over who is uh, the greatest. You see, the writing in the flow of Matthew, it's all about context. What Jesus is warning of vying for position and titles that cause offense and cause people to fall away from following Christ. What is the greatest criticism of the church today? There are a bunch of I've seen people come out of business meetings at a church crying because they didn't like the carpet or the paint or whatever it was. Now, there, there's always a, a purpose for communication in the church, the, the leadership communicating with the people of the church. That's extremely important, but there should never be these offenses within the body of Christ. There should be a desire for communication, yes. But the desire should always be to unify rather than to divide. What Jesus is doing here, he's showing this in the perfect way by going after that one lost sheep. Look there in chapter 18, verse 12. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strained? Now, we always look at the perspective of the lost sheep. And we're going to see this when we get to Luke, especially Luke goes into a lot more detail. He gives a lot of these various parables. They're all put right together. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, you can go there. The whole chapter is all about this loss, whether it was a lost piece of gold or a lost sheep or even the prodigal son. All those are within the same context, okay? 
Matthew chooses this one only. Out of all of those parables, he uses this uh, illustration. What about the 99? What about the good son? What about the other coins? What about the ones that were faithful? Why did Jesus leave the 99? Now, we see it from the perspective of the lost sheep in this parable. But, and I know some of you guys out there, not all of you are this way, but many of you are faithful. And is it easy for the faithful to be envious of the lost? Why? Because they get the attention. And you know why they're doing it, right? Especially as the faithful. We know why they're doing it. They're trying to get attention. They get the special privilege. They get the attention of the pastor. They get the attention of that person that's nice to them. They, they act out on purpose, or at least that's what we think. And we get envious. God's giving them special attention. The pastor's giving them special attention. We argue and we fight. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Thank God. God is omnipresent. The illustration here is, why is Jesus going after the lost sheep in the first place? Because they're lost. They strayed from the flock. Now, we don't see the behind-the-scene things, but what would happen with a lost sheep? It wasn't something where the shepherd would just say, oh, you need to come back, come on. No. There was something that happened to that lost sheep that made them reliant upon the shepherd. The shepherd would find that lost sheep wherever it was, and they would break the leg. Put it on its shoulders and carry it home. And, and when they got back, they would bandage or make sure that leg was whole again. They would wrap that leg up. And what would that sheep do? They would be as close to that shepherd as possible. Because who did they finally realize that they were completely reliant upon? Now, we, we don't see that from the perspective of, especially the faithful, or, or even the illustration of the prodigal son. Why, why was the quote-unquote good son envious of the younger son? I didn't get a party. I didn't get a party. Why, why did you kill the fatted lamb for him? He, he spent all of his money, he spent your inheritance, and he went off and got to do whatever he wanted, right? We get envious of the lost. Now, I'm going to save this for Luke, okay? I know this is going to be probably two years down the road because it's taken us a long time to get through these Gospels, okay? But just a hint... The answer is in the parable. As the father tells the son, you got it all. You still got your inheritance. He spent it. He's not going to get any more. And same thing with the lost sheep, by the way. Where there are consequences for being a lost sheep. Yes. But the reason why there was consequences is so that they could be reliant upon the shepherd. What we need to be, right? Reliant upon the shepherd. Reliant upon 
God himself. I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so it will not, uh, is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should not perish. If I have the heart of God, will I weep and desire for the lost to come back? Unfortunately, what we do is we play God with the lost. We, I don't want to go talk to that person. We're Jonah's. We're, we have hatred toward the Ninevites. So much so that we're willing to go out of our way to not even talk to them. And who did Jesus die for? The world, the Bible. And our desire should be also be for the lost. Even as the Father, God the Father's heart is for the lost. Jesus always desires to restore all the time. His heart is to restore. Jesus is in agreement when our heart is to restore a fallen person or even a fallen Christian or even a fallen person who is lost. And our heart should be exactly the same. By the way, this goes into the very next. Every single one of these is, by the way, the segue into the very next section. Don't ever take them out of context. It's extremely important, especially in this chapter, as you look at it, all of it is dependent upon the previous section. Okay? First, starting with this argument that they have of who is the greatest, taking of that child, showing them what it means to be humble, reliant upon God, showing how that lost sheep is found by the shepherd and is made reliant upon the shepherd. And now going to verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, now it's getting closer to home, by the way, because I have no idea what it means to be a shepherd or to take care of sheep. But I do know what it means to be a brother. If you don't understand one illustration, Jesus Christ is purposely choosing out these various illustrations showing us what it means to be humble. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your what? Now, it's interesting here. What we do, unfortunately, is the opposite of this. When a brother sins against us, what do we normally do? Thank you, Maribel, for being honest. We tell everybody else except for the brother that sinned, right? And, and, and of course, gossip spreads like wildfire. Again, that too is a sin, by the way. What, what is Jesus, the very red words of the scriptures here, in the book of Matthew, tell us to do. Who's the only one you should go to? The one that offended you. That's it. No one else. Now, there's a, of course, a, a progress to this, a, a method, if you will. What if they don't repent? It says there in verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. Now, this is very important here. You have to understand this. If you're the one and you take one or two, how many is that? Two or three, right? This is extremely important. It's all about context here, okay? Everything is in context. 
because this is going to go back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, where this is going back to what we call a discipline, or in this case, it's going to even relate to capital punishment. What does it say? Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 17, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. What is the purpose of taking one or two trusted people with you to confront a brother? What is the purpose for that? So that there's witnesses. This isn't the first step. This is the second step. Okay? Because now, not only will it go from two to three witnesses. In fact, if you look there and all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verse 6 there, and you can see it up here on the screen. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Where is Jesus Christ quoting from? He's quoting from the law for capital punishment. He's quoting from the law of something that is extremely important, okay? You would never want one person to determine if you died or not. And especially in a society that was reliant upon the law, was reliant upon truth, what was reliant upon this fact that it was always an eyewitness. They didn't have video surveillance back then. They didn't have any way of recording these things. It was always upon the, re the testimony or the reliance upon people that were honest in who they were representing. And so because of that, it always had to be two or three reliable people in order to share the fact of this punishment. It's interesting that these verses are in regard to church discipline, and they refer to an Old Testament command for capital punishment. And then in the very next paragraph, again, all of this is context, okay? This is one thing building upon another. What does it say in verse 18? Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And we take these verses completely out of context most of the time. How many times have you heard where two or three are gathered? What is it in reference to? Capital punishment. Is God with you in the closet by yourself? And aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that you don't have to take two or three other people with you into the closet just to have God there? Now, is there an importance to corporate prayer? Yes. But it doesn't neglect individual prayer. Never. Or the fact that God is with every single individual Christian. Thank God for that, by the way. But there's an importance to understanding 
what this means in agreement with one or two other people, two to three people coming together in agreement. Is there power in the two and the three in agreeing with church discipline? Does God see the faithfulness of that one person that in their great desire to see a lost brother brought back or a lost sister brought back? And is God in agreement with that? Does God want us to have a desire for those that have fallen away? And is God right there in the midst of it? Yes, he is. And aren't you glad that that person that prayed for you or that, that person that talked to you didn't give up after the very first time, that, that came back and were faithful in coming back to you, that they didn't just pray for you one time, but maybe prayed for you for days or weeks or months or even years, that you would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? And imagine even greater that Jesus himself does not give up on Now, the understanding here, especially is what Jesus is saying here, and we'll, we'll, we'll see this in the very next uh, section here. What, what, is, what does Peter say there in the very next verse, verse 21? Well, we're, we're not going to be able to finish this completely, but, but this will just whet your appetite for the next section. It'll be a good cliffhanger here. And then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Again, what is Peter referring to? This is all context. What is the previous section all about? It's about discipline. Offense. What is a person doing to me? And of course, the mantra of the day was the standard of the day. The really good Jews, they would forgive a person three times. And what is Peter doing? He's saying, I'll forgive them seven times. Right? That, that perfect number, you know, the number of God. Right? The number of perfection. I'll, I'll forgive them seven times. And you know what Jesus answers, right? What happens after the 490th time? What are you supposed to do? You get to start over, right? The understanding of this whole chapter, it's all about what does it mean to be humble and coming to the place of reliance upon the one that was willing to seek me out and then emulating him and being like him. Because aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stop forgiving you after your 490th sin? What if he capped it at that place? Aren't you glad that you can go to God anytime and know that promise is true, that he will forgive you every without fail because his blood is limited. And it covers all of your sin. Not just the past, just the present, but thank God even your future sin.
And he goes and he seeks you out every single time you go astray. This is the privilege that we have of the scriptures. And especially knowing Matthew, the author of this section, knowing his heart as he's writing these things. Do you think he understood this personally as a tax collector? How many times he had offended people. And Jesus seeing that tax collector, the one that had betrayed his own people, by the way, and had found him there in his sin, by the way, there collecting and cheating his own people out of their money. Okay? The same thing with Peter and the same thing with John, the same thing with Andrew, the same thing with every single one of us in this room. And aren't you glad that we serve a faithful God doesn't give up. So hopefully he'll come back next week and, and we conclude this chapter. Hopefully it'll whet your appetite. And, and by the way, especially as you read this, read the whole chapter again in context. It, it really comes to life. It, it actually makes more sense. It, it actually becomes even more relevant as you read these verses in context. And so Father, tonight I, I thank you for these, my friends and my family, and just all the times that Unfortunately, we ourselves fail in, in so many one of these points where we, we do. We argue and we fight and, and we vie for position or, or for power. We vie for a greatness that we think that we're going to somehow have a voice in our position in heaven. And thank God that it's not a single one of us that gets to choose that. And thank God that you're in control. That every single person in heaven is going to be on their face, worshiping you. The privilege of knowing that every single time that, that we get to come into your very presence as we talk to you, as we pray to you, that, that you're in our heart right now. And we get the privilege of worshiping you, the one who sought us out, the lost sheep. That, that, that you reached out to us first. Lord, help us to rel be reliant upon you. Our, our desire to, to be close to you. In, in a way that, that isn't so much for position as for reliance. Our very being is dependent upon you. We, we can do nothing without you. And Lord, I, I thank you so much for that privilege that we have, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done for us. And so Lord, I ask you, bless these, my friends and my family. Use us for your glory this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.